I'm very happy that we have a visiting senior monk again. It's currently only two monks resident, and we have Ajandanyo visiting from Buddha Bodhivana before he returns to Thailand next month. He has been in Australia for close to three years, and he has worked very hard as a guest in this country to further and support the establishment of Buddhism in Australia. The term for what we might call Buddhism in English in Pali is actually sasana. You can call it the Buddhist religion, but it's not just teaching, it's not just having uh, the Tipitaka available, but it's also the whole infrastructure included. It's the people, the teaching, the infrastructure, the monasteries, the stupas, and so on, everything. So and for monks, it's not only about teaching the Dhamma, but it's also looking after monasteries and even building them particularly in the tradition of Atan Chah, in our tradition. Atan Chah often was leading the monks in uh, huge building projects. And probably one reason also for the success of this tradition. By now it is a little bit more established, and the monks have to do less of that work because Often support is very good, and then you can pay for external contractors. But in the early days, particularly in Chitta Viveka, Chitta's monastery, the first one in England, also later Amaravati, you know, they were really working very, very hard. That is actually how they introduced the breakfast. The traditionally Ajahn Chah tradition, and generally, the forest tradition in Thailand, they have only one meal, but a little bit earlier, which makes it easier. It's usually between eight and nine. However, in the West, where people are not used to that, they find it very difficult to come to the monastery so early. So the meal is usually more like 11 o'clock, meaning that the monks will be a completely empty stomach until... 11, 12 o'clock, and they usually get up very early. And in the beginning, the Chitta Viveka, they would get up early, have the morning puja meditation, and then just having a cup of tea with nothing. And then they'd be working away you know, all morning, including in winter. There's another difference that can be very cold in Western monasteries, other than Thailand. And you notice the cold much more when you have nothing in the stomach in the morning. And then they had all these instances where monks would fall from the ladder or would be fainting and dropping, trying to work on an empty stomach. And this is how they introduced having a simple breakfast early. But they could also do all this work and then the main meal, 11. But all the renovation in the 
old country manor which they had bought for Chitta Viveka and it was all done by the monks to the effect that they recently had to whip out all the electric cabling has been working perfectly well, never any problem for more than 30 years but at some inspection the inspector found out that it was actually installed by people who were not licensed electricians so they had to chisel open all the walls and rip out every single cable and all electricity in the whole old building and then have it to put back in by a licensed electrician and then fix it all up again. In the early days they were sometimes working all, all day and then morning and evening the Gopuda. In fact, the successor of Lung Liem, the successor of Ajahn Chah, Lung Liem, is uh, known as an outstanding builder. Not just a builder or architect or engineer, but also uh, knowing all the various skills which are required from all the workers. So he could actually go and uh, talk to the workers and explain them uh, exactly what to do and a lot he would do himself. To the extent, uh, I remember Ajahn Chattamalo when he went to visit him. What do you think? What was the gift he bought for Lung Liem from Germany? As a Hilti drilling machine. It's considered one of the best, very much liked by professionals, very expensive. And uh, this is a gift Lung Liem really appreciates. Because although he is one of the most outstanding monks in Thailand and well known for his meditative accomplishments. When you go to Wat Nong Pong and you don't know him, you may bump into him and he may just be around on some construction site or renovation repairs of a kuti and he's there and with a drill, with a hammer, with a saw and working. In fact, being concerned about his health, the upatarks, uh, the attendant monks, often struggling, trying to uh, reduce his workload, but he likes to keep active, and also uh, to preserve his health and strength. And uh, Ajahn Danyo, Ajahn X, has trained and lived close to Lungpaliam and Wat Nongpapong for quite a number of years, so he has picked up a lot of these uh, building skills and tradesman, tradesman skills. He has built uh, at least two kutis. I know of two kutis, but maybe it's even three meditation cabins in the time he has spent in Australia in this about two and a half years. One a really big retreat kuti in Buddha on their new property, the one which they bought additionally and the other in the new monastery near Adelaide, Bodhipana. That one I've seen is really well done. Hmm. How do you measure the success of a monk? How do you measure the success of a monk? Now the um, most important success of a monk is you know, releasing the heart from all defilement, attaining Nibbana, cutting the Sangyodana, cutting the fetters,
uh, eliminating, craving, extirpating ignorance and delusion, abandoning all clinging. Now that is ultimately what monkhood is aiming for. This is ultimately what it's all about. But uh, the reality is that in our time, we are 2,500 years down the line from the Buddha, and the level of what we call pavami, you know, spiritual perfections, the strength of the spiritual faculties, you know, the indriya, the bala, you know, the karmic effects from practicing over a lifetime, and you know, the strength of the you know, wisdom, samadhi, mindfulness, faith, and energy, effort, is not that strong in that many people that that many people can actually you know, attain that. And in fact, not even meditating the majority of the time, because as a monk, you tend to have quite a bit of time. And if you have particular traditional Buddhist countries, where people, it's quite common to ordain, they're not necessarily that interested in meditation. So it's not like every monk is just meditating, formal meditation, 10 hours a day. And quite a few monks dedicate themselves in more active service to the sasana and to the lay community and to the sangha. A very well-known one is teaching, teaching the laity. That is something which you usually notice and very much appreciate. But once you have a large sangha and you have large monasteries, there's many jobs which are required in the sangha. For example, in the building activities, repair, maintenance, and organizing that. And even if you have contractors, someone has to oversee that. And sometimes the lay community may not have the time to do it. And they have to come out a long way just to organize something with a contractor. And you may have noticed they never come at the time, the tradies, which we had agreed on. They may come any time of the day. So often it is required, and already in the vineyard we actually find that the function of a monk who is overseeing building work. In fact, there was even a complaint by a, a poor laborer. There were all kinds of the rich people who were offering whole monasteries, who were offering kutis or building the Oposata Hall, and so on. And this poor laborer, he felt inspired, and he also wanted to give something. But he, he didn't have the, the money to offer a whole monastery, a whole building, and hire people to build it. So he would come to the monastery and would try to help out physically. And while doing that, he was working and trying to build the wall. And if you have ever tried, tried to do bricklaying, you may think it's a fairly easy job. But it's actually very, very difficult if you haven't got the training because when you put the brick, then you put the mortar, then you put the next brick, and the mortar and the next brick, but then this brick is slipping, and then it's quite tricky. And so this poor labor and I tried to do things like that, and then the, the wall collapsed. In the end, uh, he was really 
frustrated and he said, no, all these rich people, they can just pay for uh, turnkey solutions for the monks, but I can't and no one is helping me and instructing me. And then the Buddha, after that came to his attention, he instituted to have a monk who is overseeing construction work. And Lung Liam would be an excellent example for that. Also Ajahn Nyanadipo, who came here a year ago, the last senior monk we had visiting about a year ago. He has done that for Ajahn Kalyano to a very large extent. And so many of the projects in Buddha Bodhivana were done by Ajahn Dipo and overseen. He ordained very young, he came to the monastery still as a teenager. So he didn't have any qualifications as a tradie, but basically he learned it all. He can do plumbing, he can do carpentry, he can do bricklaying, uh, concreting, concrete pours. And in particular, he knows to talk to the contractors. Because these people will quickly know whether you have got a clue. And if they haven't got a clue, they quickly take advantage of you. But if you use the professional terms, and if you actually know how it has to be done, they quickly notice that and you get a much better job done. So some monks are actually dedicating a considerable amount of their time and energy to that kind of things. And also uh, Vinaya, the monastic discipline, mastering that, teaching it, reciting Patimokha. And it can be very helpful to build up the Pavami that then you actually can successfully meditate most of the day. And I think one reason that the tradition of Ajahn Chah is so successful in Western countries is exactly that they offer that opportunity. Because you know, from my experience, now I'm now 25 years plus in that business, and I've seen so many monks disrobing, even even just to somehow continue in robes until they pass away, you know, that is already an exception. And among those you know, who actually manage to stay in robes until they pass away, you know, it is an exception that they eliminate all defilements and become an avant. So you have got, even among those who are actually interested in that and giving it a try, it's not that everyone really has a pavami to just sit and walk meditation every day, day after day. But they may have enough power me to keep the bhikkhus rules, which is already quite difficult in the long term, and has a huge purification effect in this building up power me. And once, if someone can at least keep the precepts, and there's usually at least some meditation, and in the group meditation, or sometime in the afternoon or evening. And at other times, when they find it too difficult to meditate most of the time, they can build up power me by doing jobs in the monastery. 
because there's so much good karma you can make with it. And just like members in the lake community come out and help with the slashing, help at working bees, help with projects, and make huge amounts of good karma, so a monk or a nun can also do that. So one possibility is also you know, that when they are younger, in particular, say, young men, a young Western man ordaining, there's often lots of restlessness. And then also celibacy tends to be a little bit difficult if you're a young, energetic man. And it can be very helpful if then in the beginning of their monastic life, they do actually quite a bit of work. It takes away some of the restlessness and some of all this energy. And at the same time, they're making tremendous amounts of good karma. Because anything you do in the monastery, whether it's the most humble job, just cleaning the toilets, no, um, helping on the construction side. There's a huge amounts of good karma. And at the same time, they have a high level of restraint in a good monastery. And they have a very high level of sila, of virtue. And then uh, every day, every month, every year, and they're building up parami. And then after some time, with the more parami and uh, some of this restless energy, being put in a useful channel, that they may be able to go more and more into meditation. My own conditioning from my own background, I don't have a strong karmic connection, I think, to um, a lot of Trades work or something like that. And I was more like a cerebral person and I liked studying and things like that. And for me it was also quite uh, useful to have this experience that not only PhD counts. And if you start a monastery, sometimes a person who can do a bricklaying carpentry uh, knows how to use a drilling machine, they may be more helpful than a PhD. And they can really get something done. It was a very valuable experience for me you know, to, to see that. And when I was in lay life, I had a strong, how to say, you know, a strong appreciation. I highly valued you know, intellectual achievement. But uh, you can't get a physical monastery going, you can't get the sasana going uh, just by theory and, uh, and talking and writing papers or you know, operating an app or writing the software for an app. And a monastery is more than just software. It has to be in a concrete and brick and timber and roads and septic systems. It has to be there. It doesn't work without so it was a little bit humbling and very useful, I found, and I much more appreciate now. And the people with uh, craft skills, trade skills, who can do things with their hands, and their huge contribution to the sasana. And usually you have got a balance. You have, if you have a large sangha and you have people with different power means and skills and abilities and if they all work together. And I think Ajahn Chana was really good to channel that. 
he started quite early and he wasn't that old now having a monastery. Some of these disciples of Lumpur Man, they spend most of their time very solitary and sometimes settling down in a monastery only in their 60s or even 70s. Vesatan Chana was in his uh, 40s, yeah, barely 40s, no? 90, maybe in uh, 30s when he started Wat Nung Papong. And in the early days, he was also still experimenting. He didn't necessarily have the schedule exactly how we are used now, what we know about it from the later years. And I think that being a very exceptional skilled teacher, and he recognized what works. And the fact is simply, if you take the average person, apparently even in Isan, much more in Western countries, and you just put them in the cave for a few years you know, to become an Avahan. They're not coming out as an Avahan, they're coming out as a weirdo with mental problems. It's very few people who have that power me. If you have someone like Ajahn Man, Lumpur Kao, they can maybe do that. But most people, it's good if they have a balance of more like making more good karma and power me by helping and working and then uh, other times meditating, other times studying. And also different times of your life and of your the monastic development. Now that is another uh, thing quite fascinating. Now the Buddha has this strong encouragement for solitary practice. Because ultimately, you know, if a person is, is good in meditation, they will usually progress quickest if they have really good solitude. And it's a very important aspect the Buddha often emphasizes, you know, viveka, seclusion, solitude. However, it's not the only thing. And the Buddha was also extremely good in establishing a Sangha, a community, in fact, I'm not sure whether you are aware, but the community I belong to as a bhikkhu is the longest existing organization or corporation or association in all of humanity. I think there's only the Jain order, which is comparable, but to my knowledge, they, had, they didn't have an unbroken tradition. But to the best of my knowledge, the Bhikkhu Sangha is the only institution ever in the history of mankind, the only organization who has continued since the Buddha for 2,500 plus years. Here in Australia, they put in very happily in the companies when they say their product, that they like to boast, established since 1920. <laughs> This is a hundred years, and it's quite a long time for a, a private corporation. In Germany, someone like the Mercedes Daimler Benz they can even boast that the company building cars is around since the 1800s. But even a company since the 1800s, and for me as a bhikkhu, <laughs> 2,500 years for the Sangha. 
and functioning with the same constitution. Meaning that the Buddha, apart from all the other infinite outstanding qualities he had in terms of wisdom, liberation, insight, samadhi, compassion, he was also the greatest kind of founder, pioneer in terms of founding an organization, the greatest manager in the history of mankind, being able to establish an institution that survives for 2,500 years, and just try doing that, requires completely exceptional abilities, and functioning with the same kind of rules is almost unbelievable, but true. And the Buddha has this tremendous wisdom to balance these competing interests. Because if you have an organization only of hermits that may work well for them to meditate, but I don't think the Sangha would have survived as an organization of hermits. Because to be really strong and to survive generation after generation as an organization you need to have this esprit de corps, this, this communist spirit, this bond, this feeling of working together. And this is the one crucial aspect that you have Sangha and that the Sangha meets in harmony. The Buddha said one of the conditions for the sasana to last, the first one, is that the Sangha meets regularly, very regularly, often. So it's quite fascinating, the emphasis on solitude, but then also the emphasis the Sangha has to meet often, come together in harmony, conduct business of Sangha in harmony, disperse in harmony. And I think this is another great power me of Lumpur Cha. And he was really good in uh, establishing a Sangha that really works together and that is now able, and we have, I think it's close to 30 monasteries outside of Thailand, all over the world, and, and still having a, a sense of belonging to the same community is very difficult to establish that and maintain it. And again, I think a crucial factor for the success of Ajahn Chah's tradition in Western countries is this stronger emphasis on community compared to Lung Po Man and most Dhammayot monasteries. Because if you come to a non-Buddhist country, it's almost impossible to do that as a hermit. But if you have a Sangha, and a four or five monks, even more by now, biggest one, Amaravati, is I think getting close to 30 monks and nuns, this makes you very strong, even in an environment which is a little bit hostile or not in a traditional Buddhist. Because to have that mental strength to keep going over decades and generations in an environment which is not naturally supportive and Buddhist, very tough. But in the monastery, when you're surrounded by other bhikkhus, 
you're no longer in a, some some little hermit in a in a hostile environment. You have got that full support of the sangha. You get these synergies. It's like the simile: you know, if you have little sticks, you have a little stick, and you can easily break it. But if you have you know, 25 sticks and you put them together, even the strongest person cannot break it. Plus you get synergies in, the, in, in reality when you put 25 sticks together in community and you, know, you have the strength maybe of 100 because of synergies. There's another reason I'm very happy that we have a monk visiting again. He comes from Buddha Bodhivana, but has also been in Adelaide, Bodhipala. So it also kind of supports our connection to these places. But then he goes back to Thailand next month. And then Lumpur Liam is his teacher. He will go to Wat Nong Pong, Ajahn Chah's monastery. And it also strengthens that connection. So it was a real loss. I mean, I was in an extremely privileged position through the whole pandemic. You know, compared to what many people had to go through, you know, we as monks, we were just unbelievably lucky and then even more so here in Queensland. You know, lockdown is not really such a big thing if you live on 85 acres and have a national park next to you and we are used to live in retreat anyhow. So we're very privileged. But what, what did hurt was all these uh, visits which couldn't happen. Lumpur Liam was already in a schedule to come. Adan Metico, Adan Karunico, all that was scrapped and cancelled, and then we couldn't have visited for two years. Because this meeting of Sangha is just a crucial condition for long longevity of the Sasana. Another one is the maintaining the tradition of being a mendicant, a homeless one. As striking, the Buddha, later in his life, he spent every rains retreat for about 25 vasa in the Jetavana in Savati. But not the last one. The last rains retreat of the Buddha was in Vesali different country, different city. And uh, the Buddha doesn't do these things you know, randomly or by chance. You know, everything he does you know, with perfect mindfulness, awareness, and supreme wisdom. And I'm sure that was very deliberate. I think another reason was you know, that this parasite king, Ajatasattu, from uh, Vajragaha Magadha, he wanted to attack them just to expand his empire. And then once that became known, it's also very striking. And then the next reigns would be the Buddha spends in that country which is under danger of attack. And the kind of also averting a war. I think another reason was very deliberately that towards the end of his life, not for his own benefit, because the Buddha had attained anything that can be attained, but as an example for future generations. 
he would deliberately you know, shun the comfort of living somewhere where he, everything is organized, spent the last rains retreat in a different country, a different city, and then he was walking up to the last day. On the last day of his life, he woke up sleeping in one place, then he walked, and at the invitation and the meal in a different location, and then he walked all afternoon, crossing a river, although he was sick, to lie down in still another place, like a true homeless person, like a true mendicant, walking at age 18 and deadly sick in the afternoon and still keeping walking. Again, there's a teaching, this is how monks should be. And although we have monks going on Tudong, on Shavika, still quite difficult in Australia, no? so the easier one is to travel and visit other monasteries. So I think it's also important to maintain that, no? to have that feeling of homelessness, not just being in one place, not too domesticated. And I also feel Ajahn Exner, he has done so much work. Even now I sent him a quick message you know, with the person who picks him up, mobile phone, can you please confirm you got it? He confirmed only this morning, he said, sorry for being delayed, I've been in the workshop all the time wrapping up some projects. He was working so much and he didn't have time to even check his messages. So I think it's also nice if he gets a little bit of a holiday in Queensland. Queensland is a holiday destination for Australia, isn't it? Nice climate. And I think people here are quite happy to support him before he comes, before he goes back to Thailand to see a little bit of Australia. And not that he goes back and all he has seen is a workshop. Podcast, there's a question whether Lung Po Liam, Ajahn Chah's successor and current leading monk of the whole Ajahn Chah tradition, uh, whether his exceptional building skills and trading skills, whether he uh, had that from lay life or whether he acquired it as a monk. And to my knowledge, he didn't have any particular uh, training or education in lay life. But I believe he uh, learned that all in a hands-on way living in the monastery and, and doing all these jobs, plus possibly in a past life inclination. And by now, he is doing much more teaching. When uh, Lung Po Liam took over from Lung Po Chan, now Ajahn Chah's character, his natural character has to be incredible, charming, charismatic, very eloquent, 
and exceptional ability in the tool relate to almost anyone, whether it's local villagers, people who had only a minimal primary school education, whether it is in the high so from Bangkok, whether it's in the weird Western hippies or people from university, it could relate to anyone. And it could be incredible, uh, funny, charming, charismatic. Whereas Lungpo Liam has always been already from his family a person who is incredible, restrained and very shy to the extent that he would often not look at people. And when he first took over, and, uh, for some people, that was a bit of a disappointment. But now, over the years now, and he has obviously done his best not to adjust in that world, and he's doing quite a bit of teaching and a lot of teaching. But particularly when he was not the teaching monk, and Ajahn Chah is there as a famous teacher, and he was quite happy to support Ajahn Chah with the the physical infrastructure. Equanimity, yeah, yeah. He's like uh, Mr. Equanimity, he's famous for that. Yes. I've never seen him fast or showing any slightest sign of irritation or disappointment or anything in any situation ever. Uh, truly exceptional. I mean, he's really famous for his particular equanimity. I have heard it saying that people, some people were saying, some monks, now also watching Ajahn Chah, who was very strong on metta and karuna, and he would often teach now all day. And from after the meal, maybe 9 a.m., when he was famous in the end, and people would come all day and may go continuously until night, and also the monks. And uh, many people fear that Lungpo Chah might have lived longer if he hadn't completely exhausted himself also from giving. One monk who was attending Lungpo Chah told me, on one of those days, he was teaching all day. And in the evening, when he accompanied Ajahn Shah back at night time, back to his kuti to sleep, it turned out that Ajahn Shah had actually a bout of malaria. Because he had malaria, and you know that you often can't eliminate that and may come back. They get these bouts. And he was teaching all day when he was actually having fever chills and a bout of malaria. You can probably, if you had malaria, you can probably relate. This is actually not, not a very enjoyable sickness. You are really sick if you have a bout of malaria. And he was teaching all day. And no one noticed it until he went back at night to rest for the night. But Lung Po Liam probably also noticed that that may have shortened his lifespan. Also, his incredible power in uh, fighting in his own practice that may have also in the weekend itself. And so, Lumpolier may have felt that uh, also a little bit more equanimity may also have advantages.
and he is now no longer at Wat Nongpapong that Ajahn Chah ever has been. He is also longer in the teaching position. And he is still around, although he has a serious heart condition for many years. So today just a few reflections from my side about the importance of both solitude but also maintaining community. Making the Sangha strong and the visiting monk will contribute to that. And I think that was one reason Ajahn Chah's tradition is so strong in the West. And second, also in a homeless life, monks should be moving around shouldn't be just like one place and forever they're meant to be homeless. And then not to underestimate uh, physical abilities. In terms of the monasteries and the jobs and things which are often necessary to do here and often a person with trading skills can help more than someone with a PhD. <laughs> It can be a valuable thing. Lung Pauli, Damadao. Adan Weber Damo. Aha. Ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that indicates and he is one of the most senior monks in our tradition, Ajahn Virabhadamo. But of course, no, the idea of that practice is not that one gets attached to the tools. It is more just like an unfortunate side effect <laughs> and something one would have to give up. In general, I think physical work is easier to develop mindfulness than very cerebral work. Opening your emails and going through that under time pressure, I think is very difficult to have good mindfulness. Whereas if you do physical work and you're not under too much time pressure, I think you can have a very high level of mindfulness. So I think the building and Ajahn Chan, the utilizing building, particularly for that considerable number of people who wouldn't have the power me to just meditate in solitude all the time, but still keeping them engaged or keeping them as monks with a party mokka sila, with a very good sila, with a restraint, and with the regular meditations like in the group meditation, and then building up power me because you make so much good karma. Any other comments or questions? So I hope I could make it a little bit interesting for you to visit and see our visiting monk. He's also done some modifications on Lumpoliem Scotti. Okay. Hope to see you all on one of the days when Ajahn X is here. <laughs>